it went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook. Well, let's talk about the women's U.S. amateur. And uh, you alluded to it earlier, but we'll go to back to 1973. The U.S. Women's Amateur at Montclair Golf Club in New Jersey. And we mentioned this lady before, who you beat, who was a three-time winner, I believe, and maybe a three-time runner-up. Well, she certainly was a, um, a an idol of mine. I mean, I knew she was a terrific amateur player. and So I was the young upstart, although I wasn't that young. I was 24 at the time. But, I mean, unlike the kids today who were running doing spectacular things at 18 and 19 and 20 but um ann sander was she was the one to beat and in the finals it was um uh it was well a match. I, I, it was a very good match it was up and down actually for me because i i was part of my problem was that uh well my mother was sick that summer so I was playing for her because she had been such a big part of my my golf career up to that point. And my father was off giving a speech something somewhere for the USGA. So he was supposed to come to Montclair and get there the morning of the, the final, Saturday morning. And we started off and uh, we did, I think we played pretty good golf in the front, in the first 18. And we came to the, the 18th hole and, uh, broke for lunch and my father still wasn't there. So it was whatever noon or 1230. And I started to get a little bit worried about him because he was supposed to be there earlier. And we started off on the the second 18 and I immediately lost the first couple holes because I started to get distracted. I kept thinking, oh, where is, where is dad? You know, so many times you hear these stories of people who either do perform or don't perform because of family problems or Mm-hmm. And my mother had been in the hospital all summer, and my father wasn't there. And before I knew it, I was three down. And and then when we were on the sixth hole, I remember the chairman of the the championship brought my father over to see me to say hello, and he was to let me know that he was there because normally my father would hide behind every tree he could find. <laughs> but I knew he was there, so then I could, um, I, I immediately could relax. Yeah. So I, I birdied two of the next three holes and ended up getting back to all square. And uh, and then on the back nine, uh, somehow I think Ann made a couple of mistakes and I did find him. I ended up winning on the 18th hole, the 36th hole. So it was a it was a big deal to have my father there to see it. And and then... Who gave you the trophy? Well, it, at the presentation, <laughs> the, the president, Lynn Lardner, of the USGA was there. And Mr. Lardner stepped aside and let my father, who was vice president, present the trophy to me. And as he said in his speech, you know, Phyllis and I have tried for many years to get our hands on something like this trophy, and Carol's finally done it. So it was it was That's pretty emotional. Pretty nice, yeah. How nice. Uh, uh, and you mentioned Anne. Uh, we talked about her record, and you mentioned her being sort of the person to beat uh, I believe she, like you, won four U.S. senior amateurs as well, did she not? Um, I don't think so. No? Okay. Um, there was a Carolyn Cadone won five senior amateurs. I don't think anyone else won four. But but I won mine as match play, and the others 
had won them as stroke play. So uh, yeah, okay. So in the in the stroke play era, uh, I show her winning in eighty seven, eighty nine, ninety, and ninety three. Okay, good. Mm. In the in the stroke play era, uh, kind of starting in eighty seven, and her last win at Print at Preakness Hills Country Club in nineteen ninety three. But but she also won the nineteen eighty British Ladies Amateur. Uh, and I think Joanne Carner beat her in the 1968 final of the U.S. Women's Amateur, so that would have been right before Joanne probably decided to play professionally. But uh, point being, she was quite a player back then as well, wasn't she? Oh, absolutely. Anne was was quite a player. And I've only played Anne three times in my life, and the first being in the finals of the U.S. Women's Amateur. And then I played her in the uh, Women's Mid-Amateur Championship, which was played at my home club at Allegheny and I beat her then. And then I played her in the um, British amateur too. So I, but I only played her three times in my life. So we played together some, but um, the, it was a, it was a big deal for me to, to beat her three times because she had had such a, a, an outstanding record. So how did life change winning the ladies amateur in 1973? Well, it was such a shock. I, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't believe I could do such a thing. But, I, but this, I'm telling you, the hypnosis was like magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still didn't have great confidence in my game. I remember the winter following 1973, uh, I was in Florida and, and Bill Campbell was at a party with my parents and me. And he, and he said to me, you've got to go play in the British women's amateur. Now you've won the U S you have to go play in the British. And I said, Oh, pff, come on. I, I'll never, I'll never do anything again like that. He said, no, no, I'm not kidding. You have to do it. And I'm going to provide you with, um, a, a bag of, of practice balls of the, the small ball sure, so you can yeah. practice with the small ball before you get there. So, of course, then Bill said that to my parents, and my parents said, okay, yeah, yeah, you have to go play in the British. So, so they sent me over there all by myself to Porthcall, and uh, it was, again, I had my hypnosis tape, my, my, my blanket, if you will, my Linus blanket, and um, so it, that helped, and I, I played Angela Banalek in the final and beat her and and then it was it was done. I mean, I sent a telegram home saying um, the deed is done. I won by two and one or something like that. And because uh, but then we weren't talking on the phone across the Atlantic. And Very expensive. Telegram was was appropriate. So. <laughs> uh, and then the the Curtis Cup came. I mean, it was just it was like a fairy tale for me. Yeah. Well, we, we lost uh, Lady Angela Banalek uh, a few years back. Uh, of course, she being married to Sir Michael, who we Sir just Michael. lost a couple of weeks ago. I know. Yeah. that What a loss. Yeah. Both of them. They were wonderful people. Yeah. And both fine amateur players in their own right. You're right. Definitely. So you're holding both uh, trophies at the time uh, when you come to the 1974 U.S. Amateur, and you played pretty well that year as well. I did. I I played very well until the finals, and then I fell apart against Cindy Hill. But uh, I was still pretty pleased to to be runner-up. Final, yeah, yeah. I think she had maybe been a two-time runner-up going into that, and so she was probably ready to win. 
but she must have played quite well going into that final. I I think so, yes. I I don't remember the final particularly, but um, I just remember not playing as well as I would have liked, but that's the way it goes in match play a lot of times. And back then, the stroke play qualifying, was it one round? Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? I think it was. I know it was one round at Montclair because I in the qualifying at Montclair, and uh, I remember having a nine on a hole, on, and I can remember the, the hole. It was a six-hole. I don't remember golf courses very well, but I remember the sixth hole and having a nine, and I still shot 76 to qualify fairly easily for a match play. And but I and I was just at Montclair. They had a 50-year celebration. I can't believe it's been 50 years, but uh, the club wanted to celebrate the women's amateur, so they just had a, a celebration in um, June of this, this summer. Yeah. And it was really fun to go back and see the golf course. Of course, all the trees, not all the trees, but a lot of the trees are gone and the fescue has been planted. And, yeah. you know, the typical, it seems to me, typical things that people are doing now, taking trees down. And they seem to love fescue for, which which I don't, I, I have to say, the uh, Northwest is not built for fescue. Because right. it's, there's not a sandy soil and it's, becomes very thick and unplayable. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's it's lynx land sort of grass, but yeah. you don't see it in the states very often, do you? At least you didn't used to. You didn't used to, but now everybody thinks it looks great. It's I unplayable. It's terrible. <laughs> 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 well, Bruce, uh, uh, coming out of the U.S. Amateur win, the British Ladies Amateur win, there are quite a few other amateur championships that uh, Carol came out oh, on top as well. Yeah, three-time uh, uh, Mexico International Amateur Champion. North and South Women's Amateur, twice, right? And then uh, in 1990, he won the U.S. Women's Mid-Amateur over Paige Marsh, uh, three and one at, uh, oh, Allegheny Country Club. Oh, at Allegheny Country Club, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that was, that's another family story because my father died six months before that, 1990. And, he was supposed to be uh, an honorary chairman of it, but he wasn't there to to be there. But um, it was – I just played well, and we had we had bad weather in the finals uh, against Paige. Fortunately, we had this huge thunderstorm on about the eighth hole in the finals. And I think I was two or three down at that point. I, th- I don't think I tend to be a very good starter sometimes. Mm-hmm. But – uh, I had a chance to go into the clubhouse and sit for two hours and and collect my thoughts in the locker room and came out and won the next two or three holes and got back to even and then up, ended up winning the 
the final match and the championship. So mm. again, it was a tribute to my father who wasn't there and my mother who was there. So, yeah, and it was at, at my home club. So yeah. can't right. beat that with a stick. No. no, a little bit of home cooking is awfully nice. That's right. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, it was two years later that, uh, you came second in a 19 hole match. So that must've been a tough one too, down in Florida. Yes. I managed to miss about a three foot putt on the final hole to win it. And then we had to go extra holes and I just, I can't remember. I think I bogeyed the first extra hole. Mm. So it would have been nice to have followed up, but it wasn't meant to be. I had to wait a few more years to get my second one. Bruce, I think we have a potential answer to one of our final questions there that I detected. Yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe. We'll come back to that one. Uh, yeah. And then and then 1997, you win it again, uh, uh, win the mid-amateur over Leslie Shannon, 2-1 and one in Atlantic City. Yes, and I played pretty well then. Uh, it was... I don't. I don't remember a lot of detail. I, I do remember one thing. Uh, I had just gotten some hybrid woods, and we were playing one hole. And it was in the finals against Leslie, and I, I asked my caddy for my, I think it was my seven wood, my seven hybrid, and he handed me my nine, and I didn't get it over a hazard. So, so then I looked closely. I learned that I need to look at my club before I hit it sometimes, especially it was since it was brand new. I just didn't. It looked like, like any other it, yeah. hybrid. Yeah. But if, then Leslie messed up the same hole, so it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out? Yes, it all worked out. Well, you turned 50, and uh, that gives you an opportunity to play a tournament you hadn't played in before, and you go boom, 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 boom. Right, four in a row. Four in a row. Yep, four in a row. That was That was an amazing run. And I had my mother with me the whole time, so that was that was nice. The first year, we played in Arizona, and the, the USGA was trying to figure out what to do about carts because they were, they were allowing carts. And at the club in, in Arizona, they had enough carts for every player to have her own cart. And you could have your caddy ride with you in, in the cart with you. So I designated my mother as my caddy. So she had the, the um, best seat in the house yeah. with, sitting on the yeah. cart watching me play the whole time and so and i won that one so it was the start of of four good years of the senior we're talking about the 1999 u.s senior women's amateur which you won in a match over cecilia morg i'm gonna mess up the last name morg dalg i'll take your word for it (laughs) in 19 holes this was at desert mountain on the cochise course and uh, with that win, you joined, uh, of course, Joanne Carner, who we've talked about, Jack Nicholas, who we've talked about, Arnold Palmer, later Tiger Woods, uh, as the winner of three different USGA championships. I know that was amazing. I, I mean, I've been, we've a lot of people have compared me to, to Tiger in that way, but of course, Tiger was on his way up. He won the junior, and then the amateur, and then the open. Whereas I won the amateur, and then I went down to the mid-amateur and down to the senior. So I was on my way down as he was on <laughs> his way on up. Way but up. <laughs> but it was three different championships, so I'm yeah. not complaining. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, you know, of course, we talked about then 2000, 2001, 2002, four straight at the U.S. Senior Amateur. The, uh, the 2000 win was at Sea Island, which is pretty close to where we are, down in Beaufort, South Carolina. Yeah. And then, uh, hmm. That 2001 venue looks pretty familiar. Yeah, I wonder where that was. You like that home cooking. <laughs> yes, I like that. At Allegheny Country Club. 
And that was the, the year of 9-11. Mm. That was the week of 9-11, which was oh my. Uh, a terrible oh. week. But yeah. uh, So we qualified Saturday and Sunday, and we played two rounds. I guess we played one round on Monday, and we were in the midst of playing a double round on Tuesday, which was the day that the um, tragedy happened. And I can remember my husband coming up to me on the, the tee at about, it was about 930 as I was taking off in the first scene, he said, there's been an accident. A, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And, of course, I thought, well, I just thought there was a little Piper Cub that had yeah. gotten a little close to the building. And mm -hmm. so we went on and played and and didn't find out until we came in at lunchtime that what had really happened. And it was, it was horrible. But we played the afternoon round because we didn't know what else to do. And then we had a meeting. We were down to the quarterfinals, I think, that Tuesday night. We had a meeting with the USGA staff person, and she said, well, now, what do you want to do? Should we quit? Should we keep playing? And we didn't know what to do. So someone said, well, the president's going to speak tonight. and I, he, he apparently is going to talk about getting back to normal, do whatever we can to not let this throw us for a loop. And so we said, okay, we'll go ahead and play. So we played two rounds the next day in dead quiet. Allegheny is sort of in the flight path for the Pittsburgh airport. So there were no flights. It was a perfectly beautiful, gorgeous blue sky day and dead quiet because there was no traffic. There were some roads that go around the golf course. and It was very eerie. But we played the second round and that, or two rounds that day and then the finals on Thursday. And, and then people started to try to get out of the, the city to get home and they couldn't. So some people were stuck there for five days and some people rented cars and some people bought cars together and drove home. It was, it was a horrible week, Crazy. but it was wonderful for me, but it was a horrible week. Yep, it sure was. You, you mentioned your late husband, Dick, uh, who you lost in 2021. When did he come into your life? Uh, about 1980, 1980. I, we, we dated for a couple of years. He was a widower and, um, I finally was able to snag him because he would, there were a lot of women after him because he was a very attractive guy, <laughs> but he finally uh, succumbed to my wiles. And um, so we got married in 1983 uh -huh. and he was a great supporter. Just, he was the light of my life, love of my life. So we had a wonderful time. He came, he was, a, he loved photography. Uh. So he did a lot of photography in the in golf tournaments when I was playing and, um, uh, quite a library of photographs, I bet. Yes, we yes. Yeah. Quite a library. Uh so we we had a we had a wonderful life together. And he yeah. supported me through thick and thin, supported me financially. Actually he really enabled me to keep playing amateur golf. Because I had been working for um seven or eight years in a bank to support my habit. And then about two years after we got married, he let me quit working and I continued to play golf. Yeah, well, he was he was into photography when it was really photography. Well, it was, but he very quickly got into digital stuff and loved Photoshop. Ah, so yeah. he, he had he been a photographer really. all his life, yeah. but ah. he he did the transition, and he would spend hours on on the computer editing everything. In fact, he would take a picture and he would never leave it alone. <laughs> I would say, "Sweetheart, it looks huh? fine." No, no, I got to change this background. It's a little bit whatever, and um, <laughs> he just was. It was it was a great hobby for him. 
it's kind of like recording a podcast and never leaving alone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so right. Uh, was he a golfer? He was about a 12 handicap. He was the president of his club when I met him, mm-hmm. uh, of a local club called Shanapin. And um, so we didn't play all that much golf together, but but we we did play some golf, and uh, and we were both interested in the game. So it was a good match for us. Yeah, good. Well, let's go to the uh, the final victory, which was in two thousand two, and that was at another special place, a historic place in terms of the ownership and the management, and that was at Mid Pines. Yes, Mid Pines, Peggy Kirk Bell's place. Yeah, and it was it was just well. First of all, I couldn't believe I was going for my fourth title. Uh, it was, but I played very well. I, I was I was playing well, and it was uh, good weather, and and everything went right. And I ended up winning the championship for the fourth time. And I can remember my mother was there, of course, following me every step of the way, and. By that time, they had scooters out there, so spectators could ride little scooters around the golf course. She was a pretty wild driver, but um, she she managed to get around. And but as we were driving home from the this championship, I had just won my fourth senior senior in the row. She said, um, "I think you better get to John for a lesson because you you missed some shots in the final." <laughs> so she was she was. <laughs> After me, even then, after I'd won seven USGA championships and four seniors in a row, she was bound to determine that I was going to get better. Got to keep working. <laughs> well, uh, as you mentioned, four straight senior women amateurs at, at a very special place uh, at Mid Pines. One thing we haven't really done is talk specifically about your game. And, uh, and so let's just have you critique various aspects of your game throughout your career. Let's just start with the T-ball. A, B, C, D, what kind of driver of the ball were you? Well, I tended to hit the ball straight. So I was pretty much not in trouble. I, I didn't. I never really did learn how to fade it and, and draw it. And I, I mean, I could do it if I had to, but I really preferred to hit the ball straight. And, and so that was the strength of my game, that I was not in trouble a whole lot. And my short game was... Okay, I was a streaky putter. Sometimes I could make every putt I looked at, and other times I could I could miss a three footer as as I did in the finals in the mid amateur one year. But uh, and and at times I had the yips, but um, in general I was a pretty good putter. I was fairly wristy. I, I learned putting from my father, who was a very wristy putter, uh, and I've since tried to become less wristy, like everyone. Um, but I've never been able to do the left hand low. I'm doing it the claw now out of desperation. <laughs> but uh when I was playing well, I just I just felt like I could hit the ball where I wanted to. Yeah. Uh pretty much in the middle of the fairway most of the time and pretty much on the green. I, I played always played for pars. I didn't and if a birdie came along that was fine. I mean I, I would be sunk today because um the, the better players I think are always expecting to make birdies. Yeah. But my game was a little bit more plodding, if you will. Yeah. But I could get myself around the golf course and usually pretty close to par or a little bit under par. And and that was very effective through those years. So, Carol, for you, uh, we go back to your career back in the, you know, the 70s and 80s and then through the senior thing. How much, how much do you see the game changing during that period of time? Is it? How did it affect your game? 
Well, I, as I said, I, I would not be, I, I, my attitude probably would not be effective today because I, I don't, I didn't tend to think of low, low, low scores. I, I, I'm amazed at how low the scores are these days. And the golf courses certainly haven't gotten any easier. The players have gotten better. They've gotten stronger. The equipment, of course, is better. The golf, the golf ball flies farther. There are so many, um, some of that is negative, but I guess most, for the most part, it's positive because it makes the game appealing and exciting. Uh, so I think my game probably would not be as effective. I, I would have to change the way I was thinking for to be effective in the game today. Because I wouldn't be able to just uh, think of par every hole. I'd have to be more aggressive. Mm-hmm. But as far as physically, I think I could be... I. I would still be effective because I was a good athlete and good timing and uh, my, my game probably would, would have held up pretty well. I mean, now it's, it's terrible. Like all old people complain, my golf's lousy, but um, I'm still trying to enjoy it. I'm determined to try to enjoy it. My mother, when she was 85 was out there champing at the bitch. Couldn't wait to get out there to play golf every day. And I'm, I'm trying to be that way. Yeah, so we'll see how it goes. Pretty special. <laughs> We're not getting any longer though, are we? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just a little pity pat player now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for example, when you played in your last uh, U.S. senior uh, women's open, uh, how far past you were the 50 year olds hitting the golf ball? Oh, like 50 yards. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I didn't, I, I didn't, it's not that I didn't deserve to be there, but I should not have been there because I was taking somebody's place who could really outplay me, I'm sure. Um, so there's, I mean, when I, in my prime, I was sort of medium to medium long off the tee. Uh, At least that's the way I thought of myself. I was never, I never felt like I was being out hit by many players. And now it's, it's totally the opposite. I mean, I'm just a, I'm a, an ultra senior player and the 50 year olds are, are young you know, back when, when you were learning the game and growing up 60s, 70s, let's say, Bruce, that was your era, the deltas between the bigger hitters and the, and the you know, the longer hitters was much more compressed than it is today, right? I mean, Bruce, you talk about Nicholas maybe knocking at 10 yards, 15 yards by at best. Uh, it wasn't 50, was it? No. Oh, no. no. Well, into the wind, I was as long as, as uh, Nicholas, but downwind, it was... There was no no contest because I hit it, you know, probably seventy or eighty feet lower than what he'd hit it. And he'd put it up there, and it was, you know, just you waved at it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, and I, I, the only woman I can think of who was really much longer than I was uh, was Joanne Carner when in in our in her prime, my prime, whatever. Yeah. And she's always been head and shoulders above the other players in terms of distance. But she had probably much more experience in the trees than you ever had. <laughs> yes, for sure. Don't I wish. Sure. <laughs> but she knew how to get out of them, so it didn't matter. <laughs> we, we, we've heard of some mystical shots from her uh, from some crazy places. <laughs> I remember in the 1966 U.S. Women's Amateur, the, uh, it was played at Sewickley Heights Golf Club. And in the finals was Joanne Carner and Marlene Street. 
and Marlene has always been a short, she's a little teeny pixie of a thing. And she's always been pretty short off the tee. And she said she, she paced them off a couple of times and Joanne was a hundred yards ahead of her. However, (laughs) the the final match went down to the 36th hole and Marlene had a putt to win, which she did not make. So they went extra holes and they played five extra holes. So they played um, 41 holes and Joanne finally won. Yeah. over Marlene, yeah. even though she had that huge advantage. Of course, Marlene could run the ball up to ladies' aid onto the green with her three-wood, so yeah. <laughs> she was able to compensate. So we, we certainly don't want to wrap without talking a little bit about your major championship experience. Uh, uh, you had a chance, I think, to play in the Dinah Shore at least once, did you not? I played a number of times, maybe, yeah. maybe five or six times, I think. What are some and, of the and that was that? always fun because I, it was a big thrill to be invited as an amateur. I mean, because they invited only the top five, I think, at, through some of the years. And uh, I was low amateur, at least once, maybe twice. So yes, that that was a big big deal to go and play in the Dinosaur. I, I miss the Dinosaur very much. Well, and and as you can appreciate, all the LPGA pros that uh, played in that over the years, which. You know, they sort of considered that their masters, didn't they? Yeah. Yes, they did. Definitely. Yes, and I hope it. I hope it will build up in its uh, prestige. I mean, it's still important, but I, I hated to see it move from um, the desert. But things change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier, and then you correct me if the number's wrong, but playing in thirty-two women's U.S. Opens. That's right. And and part of the, I think I said earlier that I started playing in those in the 60s. And the reason my mother and I played was we didn't have to qualify. We could just send in an, an entry. I think there were only, I think there were maybe 85 players the first year we played and maybe 100 the second year. And uh, it was, for for a lot of my career, I didn't have to qualify for the Opens, which is huge. Yeah. I either had exemptions from winning the amateur or being on a Curtis cup team or being on the world team or uh, getting to the semifinals. I mean, they, they had fairly uh, uh, lenient exemptions through a lot of my career. So I was able to play without facing that, that daunting task of qualifying ahead of time. Uh, best finish, I believe 1972 T9 at Wingfoot. Yes. And I wasn't low amateur. <laughs> I ah. think I think Jane Bass and Cherry Booth was the low amateur that that year. Ah. So even though I played very well, I was only only got a silver medal for it or whatever they gave. Um, maybe they didn't give anything, but I can't remember. Well, that was uh, that was Susie Burning's second of three U.S. Opens. Uh, Susie's story we just featured Bruce yesterday on the podcast. Yeah, as a matter of fact. Great. Yeah, and one of the more recent inductees into the Hall of Fame. She went into the last class. Of course, right. we got Sandra Palmer and some of the founders and a few others. Uh, uh, Padre Harrington coming into the next class. Next one. Right. That's right. Next yeah. year in Pinehurst. That's right. Where they'll open up the new World Golf Hall of Fame location. So they've, I would guess, have been in touch with you about uh, what you'd like to have presented in the new location. They have been in touch with me. We we haven't hammered out everything, but. All my medals are going to go, not all my medals. I've got a couple medals. My, I have seven gold medals, 
two of which are going to go to Allegheny because the two championships I won there. Right, right. Um, but then the other five will go, and my British medal will go to the USGA. But uh, I think they're interested in my contestant badges, my 121 ah. contestant badges. Yeah. Sad, yeah. And you've kept them all, huh? I have. I think I have them all. I, I don't great? know. Of course, again, one of them will go to Allegheny, or two of them will go because two of them were for played in Allegheny. But um, uh, I also have pins from all the Curtis Cup teams. They, they gave little pins to each team member. Right. And so I have a collection of those. And uh, I, I was in touch with Hillary Kronheim, who's head of the museum at the USGA. And she mentioned that, that they'd like to have all that stuff and try to put a display in my, they're going to have lockers for each member. And I don't, I don't know how they can get that all in a locker, but <laughs> They can they can figure that out. Yeah, so they can have a, they can have that stuff. Yes. Well, part of our agreement with the USGA uh, obviously calls for them to archive these stories in perpetuity, but uh, they're also going to make a, our our material available on their platforms. And then the other thing that's kind of exciting is they want to repurpose a lot of what this these stories are. And so we wouldn't be surprised at all to be able to go into that museum, hit a little button, and maybe hear a little clip from this interview. From this interview. How yeah. nice. Yeah. How great. Yeah. 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 So uh, I think they're going to have a lot of fun with that. Bruce, you know, as, as we always talk about uh, at the end with our guests, we talk about some of the awards and accolades. Of course, this is a pretty long list for this young lady. Sure is. I think that's because everybody's already gone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 1994 to 2000, served as a USDA executive committee member, right? And also part of the, um, involved with the museum committee. At 2003, USGA Bob Jones Award, that had to be a great thrill. Well, it was, because I, when I was on the executive committee, I was head of the Bob Jones Committee. So I was involved in giving some of the Bob Jones awards to people. So when they gave it to me, it was a shock, but uh, it was <laughs> such an honor. Yeah, just it's so yeah. it's so wonderful to be honored by a, an association that's meant so much to me through the years. Absolutely. And what a list of winners over the years, huh? Oh my gosh! Yes. Pretty special. Pretty special. Yeah. Uh, the 2005 PGA First Lady of Golf Award. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was given here in Pittsburgh, um, and Arnold was a little bit involved in that. It was it was um, the location was in was near Latrobe, Latrobe is that some of the locals call it at St. Vincent College. So um, Arnold came and and was part of that presentation. It was I, that was another shock. I didn't the the PGA, I, that seems strange for me to be named the first lady for the PGA, but it was it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and great. then Bruce, fifteen years ago, pretty special one, huh? Yeah, how about that World Golf Hall of Fame? Huh? World Golf Hall of Fame, and my mother, my mother was there for that. Oh, how great! And then she she died soon thereafter, but she was able to see that, uh, which meant wonderful. a tremendous amount to me. Yeah. You went in there with some pretty interesting people. Pete and Alice Dye, my buddy, Sir Bob Charles, Herbert Warren Wind, Danny Shute, and yes. Craig Wood. Boy, that's that's quite yeah. a group. Well, Pete was a very good friend. Pete, Pete and Alice were both, um, they were 
well, Alice was like a second mother to me. So I spent a lot of time with Pete and Alice in, in Del Rey. Stayed at their house a lot. And, um, when I was told that I was going to go into the World Golf Hall of Fame, it was David Fay pulled me aside at a cocktail party at, at the Masters. He said, he pulled me into the coat closet. I was coming into the party and he said, I've got to talk to you. So he took me in there and he said, you're going to be going into the World Golf Hall of Fame. And I said, oh, come on. What a joke. <laughs> and he said, no, really, you are. But I, you can't tell anyone about this. And I said, well, oh, okay. Why would you so tell me now? <laughs> I had about seven members of my family at the cocktail party. So I immediately went out and they were all sitting at a table. I said, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> that didn't take long. You can't tell anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then later in the summer, it was about six weeks later, I was at somebody else's house spending some time with Pete and Alice. And Pete got a phone call from, um, I think it was Tim Fincham, saying that he was going to get in, go into the World Golf Hall of Fame. And Pete reacted the way I did, like, you know, what are those guys thinking? They're crazy. And then, <laughs> He, he he came in, into the room and I and I couldn't tell him that I was also going into the Hall of Fame. It was terrible. So um, we I, we all congratulated him and and then he was he was so funny about it. When we went to the actual ceremony, we had to practice that day with the television people because mm -hmm. there there was uh, specific timing on the the speeches that we were to give. I think we were given. 12 to 15 minutes for our, our acceptance speech. So Pete, I went and watched Pete give his practice speech and he had a yellow legal size tablet and he flipped the pages and he talked for 30 minutes. And the television guy said, Pete, by tonight, you have to cut your speech from 30 minutes down to 15. And Pete said, okay, sure, sure, sure. No problem. So that night he had the same tablet and kept flipping pages and he talked to her at least 30 minutes, uh, thanking everybody. <laughs> but that's the kind of guy he was. He was just he was just wonderful. Just I loved him dearly. I congratulate you on both the fine speech and sticking to your timeline. Yes. Oh yeah. I, well, I think I, I had trouble making it to five minutes, I think. Yeah. But it was it was wonderful to be there. Yeah. What a, what an honor. Uh, and then uh, uh, national coaches. Golf Coaches Hall of Fame in 2008. And then in 2015, you became part of a, an inaugural group at a pretty famous place. That was yeah. pretty special because uh, the RNA, for the first time, said, you know what? We're going to bring women into our organization. Well, that's right. I, and I think they brought 14 women in as a group. And I think there were seven honorary and seven ordinary members. And I, I went into the ordinary group, so I got to pay my dues. And uh, the honoraries, I don't, I, they're just honorary. So that's, yeah. that's fine with me, though. I've, I've, had, I've been back uh, twice for the fall meeting, mm -hmm. and it's been, it's been a wonderful experience. Everybody's been terrific, very welcoming of, of every, all the women who have joined the club. So you're part of that inaugural class of women at the at the RNA, and then in 2018, you're inducted into your Miss Porter School Athletic Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that was that was fun too. It was interesting. I I didn't. I think they just decided they needed to have a Hall of Fame at, at uh, Miss Porter, so I, I I went and and 
joined that group too. And I also was taken into the Western Pennsylvania Golf Hall of Fame. That was new about something like 2018, maybe it was 2016. And Arnold and I were the inaugural oh, people cool. there. So mm. Arnie and I had a, at the dinner there, uh, they had a fireside chat with just the two of us nice. um, being interviewed by, um, gosh, names escape me. I'm sorry, but the, the, we had been sent uh, questions ahead of time and our interviewer asked the first question. He sort of, um, he was asking me the question and Arnie, who was sitting pretty close to me, said, he elbowed me and he said, don't worry, kid, I've got this. And then he talked for 40 minutes. <laughs> So it was perfect. I didn't have to say a word. <laughs> uh, well, that's quite a career. Quite a career. Isn't it? Yeah. How many more USGA championships do you have in you, do you think? Mm, maybe none. <laughs> maybe I don't I don't have any more exemptions. Oh, okay. But next summer I'll I'll try to qualify for the senior women's amateur. If for no other reason than to swell the ranks for qualifying, our qualifying site is sort of we don't get very many people to qualify, so you don't go, don't get very many exemption spots. Yeah. So I'll I'll try to help out somebody else get into the championship. I don't see myself playing a whole lot. How about this? More. How about the U.S. Senior Women's Open? Well, next year is going to be played at Fox Chapel mm. in Pittsburgh, and I might I might try to qualify for that just for the fun of it. Yeah. Why not? But I I don't know. It's a little long for me, as we've talked about i'm just i'm a little pity pat player now so it's not so much fun but it is fun to see everyone yeah it would be kind of cool to to compete uh, there in your in your backyard it would it would be very cool but we'll see yeah yeah so before we let you go there's always three questions that we like to ask our guests uh, i kind of hinted at one of them but uh I always defer to the good-looking guy, and so I'm going to I'm going to defer to my partner and let him ask the first question. So, if you knew when you were 20 years old what you know now, what would you have done differently? I don't think I would have done very much differently. I, I mean, I. I don't think I would have turned professional right away. Although, if if I were twenty year old years old now, I probably would have played college golf. So I would probably be on a professional path. Good point. Um, but it's it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I I love the way my life unfolded. I've had a wonderful life. I've been successful beyond my wildest dreams, and I. I'm just, I, I'm very happy with, with my life. Life okay. is good. So I'm going to give you one career mulligan. Where do you take it? One career mulligan. Hmm. It might've been that putt that I missed in the finals of the women's <laughs> mid amateur in 1997 or 96, yeah. 90, 92, I think it was. Okay. If yeah. I had made that putt, I would have. Might have won three mid amateurs. Then I'd, I'd have eight championships, maybe. Yeah, I mean that, that that was the obvious one as we talked. But perhaps there are others. Can you think yeah. of any other single swing or putt that might have made a big difference? 
No, I, I can't. I remember playing uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum. I remember playing in the women's open, going off first at 7.30 in the morning. And in the process of my round, I sank a five iron and came in with a 66 and led the, the women's open for about half an hour before someone else came in with a 66. Oh. But uh, I can't think of any other it's one one mulligan I would have. Yeah. I have to think about that more. That's a good one, though. That's a good one. So we're going to finish it off by asking you, how would you like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as one of the great women amateurs of golf. And and apparently that's what people are saying about me now. So I, I'm still amazed that that's the case, but that's how I would like to be remembered. Well, you certainly deserve that honor. And Mike and I want to thank you so much for your time today. You've been great with uh, giving us plenty of time to tell your story. And we we thank you for uh, for joining us. It's been fun. Well, thank you. I'm very flattered to be included. I mean, it's. I think you're doing a wonderful thing here getting everybody to tell their stories. And so I, I can't wait to listen to some of the other podcasts. I, I did listen to a little bit of Julie Engstress the other day. So I'm looking forward to going back and finding more, more of them. Carol, thanks for sharing your story on For the Good of the Game. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line. It headed for two, but it bounced off nine. My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay. Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way.